Scripture this morning, uh, Luke 2, 1 through 20. Luke 2, 1 through 20. You'll find it on the screen behind me, on the screen in front of you, or if you've got it with you, you can, you can look at it that way too. So Luke 2, 1 through 20. Before we read, let's pray. God, we thank you for for this book, for your word, for the presence of your spirit. We thank you that you are not done speaking. We thank you that we, through this, through this book, through these ancient words, you, you still speak to us today. And by your word, we expect to be changed and made new made more like you, Jesus. Come Holy Spirit, we're ready. Amen. Luke 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their hometown to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We will go that far. So, so good. Every time, without fail. So good. You, you understand what Luke's doing here, right? In this story. If we're, if we're paying close attention, we can understand 
what he's doing because he's being very intentional about the way in which he's talking about the story about how God comes to us, about how God came into the world in the person of Jesus. He's putting Jesus beside Caesar. So on the one hand, we've got Jesus, and on the other hand, we've got Caesar. And it's almost as if, it's almost as if Luke is asking us the question, yeah, what kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of world do you want to be a part of? Caesar's world or Jesus's world? What kind of world does God intend for this world to be? Caesar's? The way of Caesar? Or Jesus? Which one? What do you want to be a part of? Let's just think about the story a little bit. For the entire world, the day that Jesus was born was pretty much just like any other day. Like, no one really noticed the big difference except for some shepherds that we'll get to a little bit later. But for all the rest of the world, it was just a regular day. The world was working exactly the way the world ought to work, the way the world always worked for them. Here's how the story goes. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Right? So everyone went to his hometown to register. So get that. He's setting it up. This is Caesar's world. Right? Caesar Augustus, otherwise known as emperor, lord, and savior. Like That's how people referred to Caesar. Those were his titles. Right? So Caesar Augustus spoke a word. He issued a decree. And what happened? He just speaks a word. He issues a decree. And what happened? The whole world moves. Everyone went to their hometown to register. Now that's power. All he has to do is issue a decree and everything moves. The whole world moves. So the world was working the way everyone thought the world ought to work. You see, Caesar Augustus had all the power. He had all the authority. He had all the power, all the authority. Why? Because, well, for one thing, he was born into the right family. Caesar Augustus had all the power in the world. Why? Because he had more wealth than any of us could ever dream of having, more cash in the bank than we'll ever see. He had all the power in the world because when you have enough power, when you have enough wealth, when you have enough status, people will listen to you. That's the way the world worked. That's the way the Roman world worked. Life literally revolved around wealth because if you had wealth, you have status. If you have status, you have power. That's Caesar Augustus, the most wealthy, powerful person in the world. Right? Wealth equals status and power. That's the world into which Jesus was born, right? Now, after 2,000 some odd years, isn't it amazing how much the world has changed? Wait, no, it hasn't, has it? It hasn't changed at all. Life is still sort of centered around wealth, resources. Wealth equals status. Status equals power. Think about it. I'm not, I'm not saying I'd ever consider this, but what would keep a guy like me from running for president of the United States? Todd's over here thinking of a million different reasons why that would not be a good idea. I can see it on his face. 
But let's stick to the simplest one. Right? You put my bank, my bank statements next to the bank statements of those who do run, and I look flat broke. And we're doing fine. Right? It's wealth. Right? Wealth equals status. Status equals power. The more wealth you have, the more you want to accumulate because then you get more status, you get more power, and it just keeps going. That's the way the world works. I mean, we even, we even make this season of Christmas, which starts in September now, I think, all about, all about wealth, the accumulation of stuff. There's like this little thing inside of moms and dads when we have kids, especially school-age kids, if, if we're being honest about it. Like there's this thing inside of us where we want to make Christmas big for our kids. And part of the reason is because we know that a couple weeks later, our kids are going to go back to school and they're going to be asked the question, what'd you get for Christmas? And we want them to be able to say it and like maybe gain a little elementary school status because of what they got. If we're honest, there's a little part of us that wants that. That, that, that's what's going on in our brains. Here's another, here's another thing. Can we put, do we have that picture up? Have you seen these? Do you see what that is? It's an upside-down Christmas tree. Did you know you could buy an upside-down Christmas tree? You can. There are people who make upside-down Christmas trees, and then they sell them, and apparently there are people who buy and put up upside-down Christmas trees. Yeah, you can go on Amazon or Target or Walmart.com and you can order one if you want one. Right? But there's actually, a, there's actually sort of a legend behind the upside-down Christmas tree. Right? In 7th century Poland, there's this uh, Benedictine monk named Boniface. Okay? He noticed that in his community, there was, a, there was a group of people who gathered around an oak tree to worship some sort of deity that they thought was connected with the oak tree, right? He, of course, being a monk, wanted to teach them about Jesus and what we believe about our faith. So here's what he did. I think he went a little too far, but here's what he did. He cut down the oak tree, and in its place, he planted a fir tree, so a Christmas tree, right? And personally, I wouldn't have cut down the oak tree. I'm like, that seems rude. Like, just plant a tree in another place, and, and, right? So when the fir tree got large enough, he cut it down too, and he turned it upside down so that he could explain the realities of the Trinity to them. Why he had to turn the thing upside down, I have no idea. So that's the legend of the upside-down Christmas tree. He wanted to do it to share our faith, to talk about the love of God for the world. We, of course, have taken the concept of the upside-down Christmas tree, and we have changed it into something totally and completely different. Why would somebody buy an upside-down Christmas tree? Well, if you go to Amazon.com, look up the upside-down Christmas tree, the first reason they list on there is, guess what? It leaves more room under the tree for presents. 
because that's what we've made. This is a sermon we've all heard before, right? The commercialization of Christmas, right? It's, it's all about wealth, the accumulation of stuff more and more. Well, fortunately, okay, we can get rid of that silly thing if you want. Fortunately, Jesus came into the world to set things right. And the way that God comes into the world in the person of Jesus gives us Christmas right side up. Right? Let's think about the story again. The angels announced the birth of Jesus to shepherds, to lowly shepherds, to people in this world who had no status, who had no power. Jesus was born into a poor, lower-class family. The angels called him Savior. They called him Lord. Those titles don't belong to Caesar. They belong to a vulnerable baby. The angels weren't gathered around Caesar's palace singing songs. They were gathered around a little baby sleeping in a, in a, in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the inn. And the first people to proclaim the good news... They weren't heralds of Caesar's palace. They were, again, shepherds. No status at all. So, as Luke tells the story, who's the powerful one here? As Luke tells the story, who commands the attention of the angels? In Luke's telling of the story, who is Lord of the universe? Who is Savior? It's not, it's not Caesar. It's a poor little baby boy. Friends, the real story of Christmas shows us that, that power isn't about wealth. It isn't about status. It's in vulnerability. It's in vulnerability. That's the way of Jesus, the way of vulnerability. He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. He also said, I came to serve, not to be served. So Christmas right side up reminds us that God comes to us in all sorts of unexpected ways. Christmas right side up reminds us that God reveals himself to us in unexpected places through unexpected people. Think of it. The creator of the universe the one through whom all things were made, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one, the one in whom all things are held together. That's what, that's what the Bible says about Jesus. The, the creator of the universe, the one through whom all things were made, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one in whom all things hold together. That one was born in a stable out back with the animals because there was no room in the inn in a tiny little town called Bethlehem. His parents were from a nowhere town called Nazareth. That's the story of how God comes to us. That right there is the story. Why would God do that? Why in the world would God do such a thing? Why would God come to us that way in that matter? That's the question we ask every Christmas Eve, every time we think about this story and celebrate this story, that's the question we have to ask. And there are all sorts of really good reasons why God did it the way God did it. Not being born in Caesar's house, but in a stable out back. Why would God do such a thing? All sorts of reasons why, but the very best reason, the very best reason is because God loves us. It's because of love 
And love doesn't force things. Love invites things. God comes to us in the birth of a child. The way every one of us was born, in the miracle of a human life, in the love of a mother and a father, a family, a community. That's how God comes to us. That's how God comes to us. We believe that. God comes to us in love. And then Jesus grew up and became a man, and he lived this life of humility and courage and self-giving love. He lived his life the way he was born, in humility and in love. This story says that the very essence of God isn't what we might expect. Like power, majesty, awesomeness, making things happen, but vulnerable love. Love born among us as an infant. That's what this story's about. Here's the thing. I'm a dad and I love being a dad. It's right up there next to being a husband. Love being a dad. One of the things I most love about being a dad is, is when I kind of notice, happens less and less now because my boys are bigger, but one of the things I, I love about being a dad is when I can tell they kind of want to be a little bit like me, like it strokes my ego, like they're looking up to me and they want to be like me, but one of the things that I love even more than that is when they want me to be like them. Oh, that just gets me. They want me to be like them. I remember a time when my boys were much smaller than they are now. And we would do this thing where we would play, we would play living room football. And it was absolutely unacceptable for us to play standing up. Like we, we had to play on our knees. Like, we couldn't be all big and scary looking. We'd have to play on our knees. We'd have to play at their height. We'd have to play at their level. We'd have to play on our knees at their level so that we couldn't run away so fast. We had to play on our knees at their level. We had to be like them so they at least had a shot at tackling us every once in a while. We had to be at, at their level so that we could look at them eye to eye. They wanted us to be like them. Even now when we wrestle on the floor, and we probably don't wrestle as much as you want us to, right, Micah? Right, you want to wrestle a lot more than we do, but daddy's knees are getting old. and it's Maybe later today. But when we wrestle, like, I don't, I don't wrestle. Um, that's what? I don't stand up when we wrestle, do I? No, I'm... I'm down on my knees. You see, sometimes we want to be like our kids. We want to be at eye level. We, we, we become like them because we love them so much, and we don't want them ever for one second to doubt that love. So we, we get down on their level. Friends, God comes to us on our level, eye level, in the person of Jesus. God comes to us because of love. God comes to us just to be with us. God comes to us in all of our joy for sure, but, but God also comes to us in the middle of all of our problems 
and our pains as well. God comes to us as we sort of nurse our wounds and experiences pain alongside of us. He went to the cross and experienced death, just like we all will someday experience death. And God comes to us and whispers in our ears like the angels to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm here among you, with you. And when God comes to us in the middle of our problems and pains, we suddenly realize that, that oh my goodness, we, we do matter. My little life matters. Your little life matters. Our life together matters a whole bunch. And we begin to realize that we really are loved. This book says that God so loved the world that he gave us his son. who shows us exactly who God is and shows us exactly what it looks like to be a real, authentic human being, not big, powerful, big, wealthy, making things happen, forcing things to happen, but, but living a life for us of selfless love, even going so far as to giving up his life on the cross, the ultimate act of selfless love. This book also says that God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. What an astounding statement. God is love. So whoever abides in God abides in love. If you abide in love, you abide in God. If you, when you love, you're abiding in God, and God abides in you. There's some strong connection. Whenever we love, there is God. That's what this story is finally calling us to, to live lives of love that we should love. That's what this story is calling us to, to love one another, to love those no one else loves. Lowly shepherds, who are they? They're nobodies. That's who the angels come to. Oh my goodness, that we should love, that we should love those in this world that no one else loves. William Sloan Coffin once said that philosopher Descartes was wrong when he, when he proposed cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. He's like, no, 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 that's not it. It's amo ergo sum, I love, therefore I am. The greatest gift we can give to anyone is love. Love that allows them and enables them to then love. Because to love is to really live. To love is to be fully alive. God loved us, became alive among us so that we might love and really live. You know, Jesus, before he, before he went to the cross, he gave, he gave his closest followers a gift. And it's such a good gift. He gave them a gift that then gets passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, and finally to you and me. And the gift that he gave them was a meal. He gave them bread, and he gave them wine. And he said, this is my body. This is my blood given for you. As often as you eat of it, as often as you drink of it, 
do this and remember me. And I think he gave them and us the gift of a meal for a very good reason. Because is there a better place in the whole wide world to experience the love of family, the love of friendship, the love of community? Is there a better place to experience love than around a table, just sharing life and a meal together? Friends, the world stops this week and listens to a story, listens to a story about, about God. The world stops this week and listens to a story about God coming quietly and unexpectedly just to be with us. The world stops this week and listens to a story about love, about life, about you and me, and about what it really means to be alive, a a story that invites us to open our hearts to love, to give God's love and to live into our love for God and our love for one another. That's the kind of world I want to live in. That's the kind of world I want to help create. Not Caesar's world. The world of love, giving our lives away. That's why I love what we're going to do next week. Next Sunday, 10 o'clock, we're going to meet at the bridge home and we're going to help clean an apartment for people who really need the help. That's love. That's, that's to be fully alive. That's the kind of world I want to live in. So leave here this morning with a watchful eye and a listening ear. Right? Watch for the love. Watch for where you see it. Watch for where you hear it. Because when you see it and you hear it out there, you'll know once again that God really is with us. Let's pray.